Hi, I'm Julie Bowen. Hi, I'm Chad Sanders. And welcome to Quitters. This week, we are interviewing Karen Kilgariff. I love when we talk to people who have these underground empires. My Favorite Murder is one of those shows that I think we look up to as we try to build our underground empire here in the podcast verse. And Karen is quite a pioneer in that world. Absolutely. I was introduced to her podcast through my former assistant, Melissa. Shout out to Melissa, who would travel to see her. As new podcasters ourselves, we had to sit at the feet of the Yoda because mm. she does have an underground empire. And boy, does she have a personal story that is fascinating. And she was so generous to share so much vulnerability with us. And she talks to us about quitting her drinking habit, her addiction. The quit of the substance comes with loads of other quits, unanticipated quits. And she's a writer. And I think she does a really great job of telling the story of how she realized she needed to give up this thing that mattered so much in her life. Yeah. She was really revealing, and I was stunned by how much she was willing to share and how open she was and funny. I mean, she has an entertainment background, but she is a funny lady. And here she is, Karen Kilgariff. Karen, I'm Julie. We've never met before. I'm Chad. Hi, Chad. He had this idea for a podcast about people that quit things and it makes you better or stronger. And sometimes it's something really small, something obvious, but often it is quitting something a little bit more esoteric like shame mm. or fear. And we just researched you and we're delighted. <laughs> <laughs> At the amount of quitting I've done in my life. <laughs> we want to find out more too. Sure. Yes. We also are both from Maryland, as is our producer. To kick it off, I just wanted to say one thing to you and see how you react. Okay. Alexander Kunwa. No. Damn it. Sorry. He's Maryland's cannibal. Oh. And uh, I believe put to death by the state in Maryland. I thought, you know, this is our light cocktail conversation. Right. Exactly. Well, this is kind of how it goes for me these days, which I do not mind in the least. And I actually do have shame around not being able to like recognize off the bat because I wanted to say there was a guy, but I don't know if it was in Maryland, who actually served human flesh to neighbors. It wasn't that guy, though, it sounds like. But, you know, I would like to think that there's only a couple cannibal stories, which we know is probably not the truth. Do you know any cannibal stories, Chad? I don't think so. I mean, in Game of Thrones, they're the Thins <laughs> who eat each other. Yep. When I think about cannibalism, I... <laughs> Which is not often, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> when I sit down by the fire and think about cannibalism. I know it's bad because it's people, but I don't get why it's so particularly frowned upon. Really? <laughs> I mean, besides the criminal element of it is bad, but the actual idea of people as food, I don't know why it would be any different than anything else that's an animal that's food. That's food. I see. I just did the story of the guys that survived the Uruguayan rugby team, that plane crash in the Andes that the movie Alive was about. Rugby players eat their dead. They did. And there was a whole discussion about it. They all decided, we're doing this to survive. Clearly, this is the kind of thing we are facing. We have to do it. We're doing anything we can to stay alive. And then they did. So I do think you're right in that way that it depends on the context. 
Like it depends on your attitude, what you're going in with, with that cannibalism. I think that idea of whoever the guy was, and maybe it was a woman who secretly fed her neighbors human meat is a different thing because then it's against someone's will. Yeah. Yeah. What is that about? I think it's very deranged and there's something really mentally frightening going on for sure. Don't you think it's rage? The people who have had to repress their own rage, I'm now the world's most famous psychiatrist. Yeah. This is my favorite thing to do is unqualified psychiatry. So unqualified. But I think that people that are really angry and abused and are not able to process it, literally and figuratively, eat their anger and they carry it with them until finally they either act it out on somebody else or quite literally, in that case, make them eat their anger. Yeah. Eat the thing that makes them mad. I get it. (laughs) I think you're projecting it a little bit. I think you have some anger and so do I and we want to eat it. (laughs) But That's true. We're forced too often. Yeah. (sighs) That is very, very true. But we read about you, and you've talked about it openly, Karen, that you, a long time ago, you quit drinking. Oh, yes. But for people that don't know, you are a wildly successful podcaster. My Favorite Murder has over 30 million downloads, listens per month. Yeah, I think so. It's some crazy high number. It changes sometimes, but yeah, it's a nuts number. And I was unfamiliar with your podcast until about four years ago. You were doing a live show in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. And my assistant said, I'm going up there. This is what I want for my birthday. I want time off and I want to stay up in Santa Barbara. And I said, to hear a what? For a what? And Mm -hmm. I got fascinated with this. Have you become too big to quit now? Can you ever quit this? (laughs) I don't think so. I could always find a way (laughs) to quit. But I don't want to say the job is easy. But compared to some of the jobs I've had, this is one of the easier jobs that has brought me a level of success I never dreamed of. This is so much better than so many things I've done before that there's no reason to quit. I'm in my office right now. I had to walk from the kitchen 40 feet away to the office to do this job. It's my favorite in terms of convenience, in terms of we don't have to get ready. You don't have to like pass some sort of standard. Do you have anything good to say? And sometimes we don't, and we're lucky enough somehow that works too. Yeah, this particular version of my career is so delightful to me and so unexpected that it's all gravy. I like scary stuff, which I got from my sister. I think she incepted me with it when I was very little. Sometimes people who don't like scary stuff, they ask, well, why would you watch that? Why would you listen to that? Aren't you going to be scared? Yeah, that's why I'm here. But your show is not scary. Your show is really alive talking about dead people. Why do you think people like your show? Somebody recently sent a really lovely tweet and they said, it's not about the crimes, it's about the people, which I thought was a really lovely compliment because we basically use these very bizarre and outer limits crime stories to kind of bond. Isn't this horrifying? What if this happened to you? That kind of scenario running that sometimes for certain types of people with certain types of, I don't know, anxiety or my mom read all the Anne Rule books. They were always sitting on her nightstand. So I would read them because they were nearby and I wanted to know what she was reading about. However, you get access to that world, you kind of are spending time there knowing it's a taboo. It's almost just the topic that gets you into more philosophical stuff or more, I don't know, maybe appreciation or something, talking about these extremes that happen to people where you're like, 
how lucky your life might be, or if you think you're having a hard day, yeah. maybe we tell a survivor story and you have a, a little bit of a lens shift. To me, it's kind of mysterious. People tell us a lot of stuff like it just feels like hanging out with friends. And these days, people are so isolated that just listening to people have a real conversation and kind of laugh at each other and make each other laugh and then talk about heavy shit and change those gears and have kind of a full spectrum experience. Mm -hmm. I think that's a piece of it, too. From listening to especially your live show recordings, it's very clear to me that your audience likes the subject matter, but they really like you. Yeah. Why do you think they like you, the person? <laughs> and I, I'm sorry, I don't mean that in the tone that I said it. Justify yourself. I'm just like, why do you think they like you? Look, I'm pretty nice. No, um, <laughs> You're awesome. Thank you. No, no, I think it's a combination of things. I think they know our story. So when we started the podcast, Georgia had a couple years prior a viral video where she and her old partner that she did a different podcast with, they made a chicken McNuggetini drink and that cocktail video on YouTube went viral. So she was coming from this Food Network area. And then I had been a stand-up comic for a long time, did a bunch of writing. So we met in this weird spot. And so I think aside from people being interested in true crime, they got to know us in this hang way mm. where we, unlike many true crime podcasts, bullshit with each other for like 20 minutes yes. at the top of the show. And we've gotten a lot of criticism about it and we don't care because <laughs> that's what we like. I've had other podcasts that no one gave a shit about before. So I don't think it's me. I think it's kind of the magical combination of all these elements and Georgia and my personal chemistry and the way we talk to each other. We genuinely make each other laugh. We're genuinely interested in the things we're telling each other. And I also truly believe, here's my secret trick of podcasting, talk fast. Think there's something <gasps> oh, to that. Like, oh, no, no, no. Uh -oh. I'm a, oh, here it comes. Here comes the bell. <laughs> oh, I finally got to ring the bell. <laughs> oh, I already have theories built underneath this. So do whatever you want, Julie. Okay, because Chad introduced the bells early on because even though this is a podcast about quitting. He's black. I'm white. There's always this sort of drumbeat of race and incidental or grievous misunderstanding of one another and misinterpretation or interruption or microaggression, whatever you want to call it. And Chad said, we ring the bell on each other just to keep it clean. It's kind of a funny, but also real way to mark a moment where you're like, hang on a second. We can either come back to it later. Or we can talk about it now. And one of the things Chad has been remarking to me of late is... Chad, I'm going to let you say it because I'm not going to let that bell get rung on me. You go ahead. You say it. I will say it. And <laughs> it's not to keep it clean. I think it's to address when it does get dirty. Us clean. Yeah, because it is going to get dirty. Right. To clean our relationship. Yes. And I'm just going to say it how I said it. Like, white people talk fast. <laughs> and uh, you talk fast. There's a cadence. There's a certain frequency at which the communication happens. And I'm doing a bunch of math in my head to either learn that frequency and join in it or to resist it because I don't want to lose myself in the stream of it. Yep. It's so funny that you say that because as I've been listening to your show, I noticed something about your voice and your sense of humor. It's the voice and sense of humor that I think a lot of white people that I know are trying to have when they talk. They're trying to be the way that you are actually funny. They're trying to be that sort of funny. And even your tone of voice, they're trying to have that tone of voice. You are nodding and validating me. Are you nodding because you kind of know what I mean? 
Or just to be like, keep going, you'll get there. Well, I think that is a common thing when things get popular. You know, there's like that thing on TikTok where they say there's a lot of teen girls that are getting tics. Yeah. Like facial tics or physical mm. tics uh-huh. because they're seeing people on TikTok do it. Mm-hmm. I think oh. there is a kind of duckling imprinting thing that happens when people become... And I'm not saying I'm the only one that does that, but I think that's just a trend. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't surprise me that that's an observation that you would see. And I try not to pay too much attention to what the audience is doing or how they're doing it. I think that's a little dangerous. It's too easy to go down those rabbit holes of like what people are doing, what their opinions are, all that kind of stuff. So I try to a little bit keep a distance, but it would make sense to me what the point you're making. Yeah. That's interesting. You're self-aware about yourself as a trendsetter. I texted our producer, Rachel, earlier this week, and I said, oh, Karen is who this person we both know is trying to sound like (laughs) when she makes a joke because your jokes land and her jokes do okay. But now I'm like, it snaps something into focus. I get it. I see what she's going for. Sure. Does it make you anxious to think about your audience is the key to your success. Obviously, you're doing what you love to do and you're staying true to your voice. You don't care if people think that the first 20 minutes is extraneous or whatever. You're like, we're doing what we love to do. But if you think about, and 34 million people shall hear this, (laughs) each and everywhere, does your mouth go dry? There is a kind of pressure where you want to execute what you're doing in a way that pleases everybody. Yeah. And what we learned very early on is it's very easy to be misinterpreted. It's very easy to reveal your ignorances when you're just feeling free to express any thought that goes through your head, (laughs) which has been a very interesting and very impactful learning curve because there's things that we've said and then people will write back and be like, what the fuck are you talking about? And then you go, oh shit, this is a blind spot. And this is important to call the blind spot to say, hey, sorry, that is not how I meant it. Or I'm just ignorant. Thank you for taking the time to even express this. It's definitely a thing that happens with race issues and with true crime as an quote-unquote interest. We're almost always talking about white male serial killers that do very specific horrifying things. Those are usually the stories. Criminal justice is a different conversation that when those two things interact or overlap, you have to be really fucking careful As a white woman who grew up in the 70s and 80s, I have bad programming. I've Mm. heard a lot of fucked up shit. I've had things normalized that it took a long time to understand just the inherent racism and growing up in just an entirely white community. Because I didn't go to college, I just kind of started doing stand-up and I was around the people that I was around. And I had some great friends who opened my eyes to a lot of things. But yeah, that's a part of being a podcaster. You're going to say your opinion and then people are going to go, hey, dummy, guess what? And then you have to go, ooh, yeah, that's true. Where did you grow up? Petaluma in Northern California. I did go to college and I still am trying to deprogram. And I really like that. I'm going to steal that from you, that you got some bad programming because that is, you know, messages that get reinforced over and over. And what you just said is what we're doing when we ring the bell and just go, I did not know that. And are we allowed to actually process, move forward? Julie, every time we have a conversation, she's like, how do I best introduce Chad to set him up for this conversation? Sometimes I'm scared when you set me up as like, this guy wrote a book about race. Oh man, they're not going to say anything in this interview. Now they're going to be scared. (laughs) Now they're going to think that I'm here to like catch them. And that's not what this podcast is about. 
But I wanted to ask to what you just said about people following up after you put something out in the world and they're like, oh, I prefer that you think of things this way. How do you balance that with there's sort of a defiance in the voice of your show, which is this is our show. These are our voices. And how do you balance those two things? They're two separate things. One is opinion. Stop talking at the top of your show. It's like, fuck off. Mm. I mean, that's just (laughs) fuck off. It's our show. Go make your own show. Good luck. (laughs) But when someone writes in and says please don't say prostitute, please say sex worker. There's Mm. an inherent disrespect in prostitute, and we're trying to get rid of it because sex workers are the victims of more crimes. And actually getting information that's people who are not talking about their opinion, they're talking about factual shit that we just don't know. Mm. And we've gotten very good at sussing between the two and knowing the difference. Even if people are irritated, a woman once tweeted at me and said, you don't decide if you're an ally. We decide if you're an ally. Because I said Mm. something like, we're being allies. And then she wrote that back and I went, I get that. I get what you mean. And I get how there's a white stance of, oh, we'll fix this and we're going to tell you how this goes now. I think being in the learning position and being in a position of saying, we do not claim to be experts or to know, we would love to hear. We would love to not make that mistake again. If you are willing to tell us your opinion of that moment that you want corrected, We are willing to listen and entertain it. But there are some people who are literally furious because George and I talked about how useless owning a pizza cutter is recently. And people are like, oh, so frozen pizza doesn't exist. And it's like, I'm reading these (laughs) tweets where I'm just like, guys, what are we doing? What is this? Now, come on. (laughs) But it is the way social media kind of makes us interact, right? Everything is a little bit of a how dare you. Mm -hmm. And it can be anything these days from fucking Nazis marching in the street to frozen pizza deserves a voice. (laughs) (laughs) But it doesn't. It doesn't. I'm here to say, I'm just going to take a really radical stance. Frozen pizza does not deserve a voice. There, I said it. (laughs) Come at me. Bring it. What do you do with the anxiety If obviously at one point, I imagine that you drank at it. Oh, yeah. I have a lot of anxiety. It makes sense to me that you would try some way to medicate that. So here you are in front of 34 million people. Can you walk us through who you were before with anxiety and how you came to where you are? I love that it's Julie Bowen saying this to me like you weren't on Modern Family for 100 years with millions of people watching you every week. Like When I thought about that, I would curl up in a ball and cry. Yeah. My sphincter tightens just hearing you say it. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. A lot of denial. Really, a lot of denial. Sure. Yes, for sure. And I never engaged in the comments. And that's something that's really interesting because doing something that's brand new, and it's me and Chad and Rachel and some other people here, but I will do what needs to be done. And it's not Chad's job to educate people. We want to have a fun conversation and not have it be constantly with this heaviness to it. So yeah, you got me. I'm going to check out the comments. When I started looking at as opportunities to learn in a way that I wouldn't be able to just sitting at my house, it was a lot less kind of intimidating and it felt a lot less attacky. I think people don't moderate their tone in a tweet because they're just like, they probably won't see it anyway. Usually is the energy with it. But then when you actually read it, it's like if you can kind of parse the words apart and just see what are people actually trying to tell you Mm. that's important. And that's like a thing we should all be trying to, in my opinion, hear each other and connect more. I think Mm -hmm. that's the key to going forward and everybody getting a little smarter and more aware about how human beings want to be treated in kind of every direction. Growing up with what I now know is social anxiety, Mm. 
back then I would turn that into acting out. So it was always trying to get attention, trying to make up a song and do a dance in the front room. My parents were the perfect 70s parents to just be like, the newspaper goes up, nightly news goes on. So socially acting that out all the time, it was like a constant feedback loop of embarrassing myself, taking risks, doing stupid shit, and then going home and being like, why am I like this? I just want to be shy. Um, (laughs) And I just couldn't be. And I always had something to say. And I also wanted credit for the things I was thinking of saying. So that's what (laughs) most comics are like growing up, right? It's like you have a good idea and you want people to know it. But wait, I want credit for the things I was thinking of saying, not even the things you'd already said. You're like, I want you guys to know that I'm going to be thinking of that really soon. And I want credit. Yeah, (laughs) I'm working on some good things to stay too loud in this group of teenagers. I'm workshopping some offensive stuff and it's really (laughs) smart though. So hang on, wait for it. You're gonna love it. (laughs) So there was the thing that felt good when I finally started drinking was like, oh good, 40 minutes away from this awful feeling. Um, (laughs) And by the time I quit drinking, it had progressed in a way that was really bad. And I was like a blackout drunk and we drank every night and... Part of the reason I wanted to be a stand-up comic was basically part of the job is partying and part of the job is hanging out in clubs, which I loved. And I didn't really think I was going to be able to quit drinking when I knew there were problems and I knew I was going too far and people were actually expressing concern. And then I started having seizures and it basically took care of itself. And so as much as I love it when people are like, you stopped drinking that long ago, and I get all the pseudo credit. The truth of it was it was almost like medically induced having to quit because it was such a scary experience to have seizures that I just wanted to get away from the entire experience. You just covered a lot of ground. If you don't mind, I want to mine a little bit in some of those snapshots. Sure. And also, I want to be a little bit vulnerable. I used to be a pretty heavy drinker. I think a blackout drinker is a fair term to use from time to time. I saw somewhere that you would wake up on the floor, maybe in your room. Mm -hmm. And I certainly can remember like waking up in the prayer position beside my bed because I like tried to say my prayers before I passed out in the bed and didn't make it. You know, I'm like, kind of just right into it, right over. Like lights on and pizza in the oven. And, you know, when I was younger, walking in the house with one shoe on type of thing. Yeah. Egg McMuffin in your pocket, like one of those (laughs) that you find the next morning and you're like, yeah. 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 Someone else's cell phone. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Chad, I had no idea. Oh, man. I used to really get it in. When you mentioned some people expressed concern to you, I think there's a Sopranos, Christopher needs an intervention scene (laughs) that people have in their minds when they think of someone expressing concern to them about their drinking. Mm -hmm. But can you tell me what that actually looked like for you? I can't because I remember it so well. It was the 90s in LA. I had moved to LA in 94. I was 24. I was a total idiot. I was just like, I'm going to go down there and be on TV. Just this kind of based on almost nothing except for a couple other friends who had moved down. But you did it. (laughs) I I know. (laughs) The first couple years were great because it was finding this group of friends. There was a bunch of comics that all hung out. We all drank together. Totally normal to blackout drink every night. Also very normal. We talk about this a lot to drink and drive. That was because there was no cabs, right? It was like no one ever took a cab unless you were stuck at the airport or something. Mm. Really just bad behavior and dangerous behavior. And like we were all still smoking. (laughs) You could still smoke at bars. It was the end of those really (laughs) unhealthy days that were kind of celebrated. 
slowly but surely in my group of friends, one by one, people started going to AA because it was such an extreme way of living. And people were having these, at first they were funny stories because the egg McMuffin in the pocket is one of my friend's stories. And I can't remember who did it, where they literally woke up the next morning, like, I'm and then they were like, oh my God, like it was a miracle. <laughs> it was me, Karen. <laughs> was that? that was you. We used to hang out. You probably blacked out and forgot. <laughs> we were best friends, Chad. <laughs> I've definitely had people come up to me like, hi, Karen, kind of pissed where I'm just like, Sorry, if we were close between 94 and 97, I do not know who you are. I apologize. I know we had a good time. I really loved that idea of like, I'm here to do a set and then celebrate the thing I just did with eight beers and seven shots of Goldschlager. Do you remember when Goldschlager was? No, not Goldschlager. Yes, you're drinking Gold Flex. Yeah, but were they really gold? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it can't. It was like tinsel. It was like... They said so it, on the bottle. I know, but... It told us that it then was... Then it must be true. Ugh. I have to say, there were some things about the 90s that were kind of great in that sort of last gasp of hedonism, where people still smoked everywhere, and they put gold in the drinks were thick and green, and there was Jägermeister. Yep. I kind of got excited when people got around to craft cocktails and not putting gold and cough syrup in your drinks anymore. <laughs> I kind of appreciated that. But yeah, that was a last gasp. And I'm really relating to the fact you weren't alone. It's not like, oh, only Karen goes to the club, does a five-minute set, and has three drinks for each minute that she just performed. (laughs) (laughs) That was basically the way it was. No, everybody did it. And, you know, thank God no one hit someone with their car. Like, I think about it and cringe constantly. Mm. The risks we took were too risky, and we Mm. were just too stupid to know how Mm. risky we were behaving. Thank God none of those things happened. But as people slowly and quietly went off to AA, the rest of us got real defensive and real shit-talky. And I could feel inside that it was wrong, that I knew I was like, oh, this is what you do when you still want to drink. And other people are like, this is bad. We can't do it anymore. So I remember my friend, we were at that bar on on Yucca. Do you know where the Yucca and the Playboy Liquors right there? Almost to Franklin? Yes, I sure do. Playboy Liquor was pretty intense liquor store. I had an apartment right up the street, but then there was this bar. Now it's a fancy bar that has like wallpaper and chandeliers where I went in there. I was like, what the hell is this? Because in the 90s, the floor was wet. The walls were black. There was blacklight posters, an awful band playing as loud as humanly Mm -hmm. possible. And it was really kind of dank. And I remember my friend, Joey Seahe, who was a really talented comedy singer. He did these amazing shows. His name, was Joey Cheesy. He would do shows on rollerblades. No. He's one of the most talented people I know and hilarious. He was the one at this bar. We were all there to see our friend's band. It was only 10 o'clock at night and I was already like almost passed out. And he turned to me and said, are you okay? It seems like you're drinking a lot lately. I didn't even let him finish the sentence. I was just like a complete asshole to him. And I think I had my first seizure probably two weeks later. No way. So he was basically tracking this downhill trajectory I was on and kind of going, I care. And I basically said, fuck you, and then started having seizures and stopped drinking. But you could have had seizures and continued to drink. You talk about it like your quit was forced on you. It seems like there was a medical emergency, but you could have drunk yourself to death. True. I think it was just the amount of 
realness that I needed of you've done it to yourself. You didn't do it to the other people or Mm. what I feared, which was drunk driving was so gross. But I just did it to myself. So then it was that kind of thing where I used to talk about this in my act where the doctor, I also didn't have insurance, which my mother warned me about Mm. for years because she was a nurse. She's like, you've got to get insurance. You do not want to have to be in this position. So when I had my seizures, my friend took me to Cedars. They immediately found out I didn't have insurance and sent me down to Harbor Hospital, which was Mm. rough. And that's where I would go to for my neurology appointments. And the doctor there was like, how many drinks on average do you have a night? And I'm like, I don't know, like eight. I said some insane number. And he was like, no, no, a night. And I was like, right, a night. And I I was bewildered at how freaked out a doctor was. And then it was like, oh, yeah, we're not normal. No one's doing what we're doing. Like, we're being so extreme on purpose and to this level of unhealthiness. So you had a seizure. I'm trying to kind of map out where you were before you had your seizures and then where you were after, because then you were left with the anxiety, I'm sure, or left with the social anxiety or left with whatever it was you were trying to medicate away. Before, I thought I was kind of living high on the hog. That was how I was interpreting what I was doing when actually it was just I was locking myself into an alcoholic kind of Mm -hmm. spiral. Mm. So once I couldn't rationalize that anymore or make up, this is funny and great. It's great to wake up like this. Like all of that went away with the hospitalization. Then I actually felt amazing physically. Oh. Because another piece of why I think I had seizures is, I don't know, Julie, if you remember the old fen-fen trend of the 90s. Oh, yes. Right? Of course. (laughs) It was like everyone in L.A., every woman. We have to tell Chad. Chad probably doesn't know what fen-fen is. I do not. Fen-fen was the diet pill combo. Two fens. Two fens. (laughs) You had the upper and the downer. I started so early on that that I was before the downer part. So I was (gasps) just just on the upper. So it was like doing 12 lines of cocaine every day. My behavior, it was horrifying and I got really skinny, but I couldn't feel it or tell or I wasn't happy. It wasn't better. It was just like, here, I'm going to be on TV. I finally look okay. It probably also made it a lot harder to get properly drunk then. Oh, yeah. Because you're on Mm. so much whatever amphetamine that was. Yes. My tolerance went way up, so I had to drink more. Yeah, that's what made it so kind of extreme. They banned Fen-Fen, I believe. Yes. But it was (laughs) for a minute. When you watch the Sackler story, Dope Sick, and you're like, how could this have ever happened? You're like, oh, it it happens every 10 years or so. It just is never quite as big as Oxy. But Fen-Fen, yeah, that was legal, 100% legal and prescribed by a doctor. Yes. Talk about like the anxiety. It was like I was taking anxiety pills. So any anxiety that was already there, then I was adding to it times 10, then going to like an audition trying to be funny when people would be like, could you take it again and be less angry? (laughs) I'd be like, I actually can't. I wish I could. I haven't eaten in a week. I'm just really jacked up on amphetamines and no. And I'd love some Goldschlager. (laughs) I can't be funny, even though that's the whole fucking point of all of this. So then afterwards... I stopped drinking. I suddenly felt great. I lost a bunch of weight naturally because I wasn't packing on beer every night. Right. There was a kind of a rebalancing. And then I started having panic attacks. Ah. All of that anxiety was still there. So the first time I had one, I was zooming up the 101, going 75 miles an hour in the fast lane. And I suddenly realized... If I start to have a seizure right now, there's no shoulder to pull over on and I'm going to kill everybody around me. And then I was in a full-on panic attack, couldn't drive for a while. So there was those kinds of really scary moments of catching up to myself. This bad behavior, 
I never felt the impact because I was always numbing out. And finally, I was feeling again. And it was just coming like a freight train in times when I didn't even expect it. So, yeah, there was some intense, like, I quit in 97. And it took me a while to drive again because you have to basically prove that your medicine controls your seizures. I was going to say, I don't think you're supposed to drive if you are having seizures. Right. You have to wait three years. So I started driving again in 2000 thinking, all right, I'm back. Everything's great. I've got it all set up. And then it was like the next wave of, oh, no, here's all the shit you haven't dealt with. Oh, just waiting on the other side of the door. How did you manage that then? Did you ever think, I shouldn't have quit? (laughs) (laughs) No, because in the end days, I was doing stuff like waking up the morning and going and grabbing a bottle of Jameson and just taking a nice pull off of it in the morning Mm. and thinking to myself, this is bad. You shouldn't be doing this. This is not good. But the compulsion was really strong. So I knew that basically having that part behind me and having actually survived it was only good. It was all like, okay, that was a thing that you wouldn't have been able to do maybe on your own, or it seemed really difficult. So now you've actually done it. So you have to go somewhere from here. The next thing that happened, though, was that I got a job head writing on a daytime talk show, which was I'd only had two staff writing jobs before that. I'd kind of given up on-camera performance because it created so much anxiety in me. Mm. And so deep down, I kind of hated it. But that's what the plan was in 94. So I never thought I could change it. So once I started writing, it was like, oh, I love this. It's control. I can wear whatever I want. I don't have to be so worried about stuff. But then slowly with the added responsibility, I think when I was 33, I started going to therapy. And that's when it really actually started to change and the balance got kind of more meaningful and better. So before you quit and when you were at sort of the height of your near blackout but you were funny and you're performing in clubs. Did you feel defined by that nighttime Karen, that party girl, whatever that sweet spot was, an hour, maybe 90 minutes, maybe it got narrower and narrower, but when the chemistry got just right <laughs> and you're like, I, this is it, this is me, and this is the me that everybody wants to see because when you quit, then did you have to leave her behind? I did for a while just because it was that idea. It's a very early 20s. You pick this almost like persona or lifestyle where I was mm-hmm. like riot girl, right? It was always mm-hmm. black tights, plaid mini skirt and boots. Love it. Right? It was that approach where it's just like, yes. hey, fuck you, man. I'll say fuck you, man. It's still a little sassy. Yes, exactly. It's sassy. You're trying to be sexy, but you're also being a feminist and you fucking listen to La Tigra and you can't tell me what to do. (laughs) It's all very presentational. So that felt great to me because it was almost like I took my rebellion and my anxiety and my weird personality from being younger and I turned it into something that actually made me popular and I got to hang out with the cool kids because I could do this thing. And it seemed like the key. Suddenly the key was gone. Now I don't know kind of where to go. And can I do stand-up sober? Can I deal with how hard some of these things are without running and numbing out? There was a lot of that sorting out of how I cope with things. So I would say for a solid five years, I was not coping well, but Mm. I was just kind of getting by. And then when I finally was like, you just need to go to therapy. You've known this for so long. You just do it. 
to me, that was the secret mountain that I needed to climb inside. I thought it was the drinking. That was just kind of an element of the lifestyle. It was really deep down why I felt that compulsion to escape what the shame was about, what my self-image felt like. All those things are what needed to get addressed. The drinking was just kind of this extra problem. What was going on in your relationships to people during the peak of your drinking? Friends, family, romantic stuff. What was the status of all that? Sloppy (laughs) and (laughs) irresponsible and inconsiderate and selfish and alcoholically narcissistic. I never went to AA for drinking. Later on, I went for eating disorder stuff, but it's all the same book, right? And I knew that it applied to me as an alcoholic as well as the other stuff. But one of the things they talk about is you're an egomaniac with low self-esteem. These kind of contradictions within people who are addicts that no one can tell you what to do and you also think you're a piece of shit. And it's like this trap that you basically kind of get yourself into. There was a lot of those kinds of realizations later on where then I went, oh, I was creating all my own problems in my life when I was complaining about people or wasn't getting, quote unquote, what I wanted. This idea that I would go to auditions just blazing on Fen, trying to be, (laughs) quote unquote, funny. I hated the entire experience. And it was like, I never once thought, what do I feel like? Will I get it? Will they pick me? It was this very strange place to be. And I didn't think I could be in any other place. So it was a huge relief. And it took a long time. After I stopped drinking, I did kind of isolate myself for a little while. I was just kind of away because I knew I couldn't hang out the way I did before. I would go to bars to meet up for someone's birthday and I would get really kind of sweaty because it would felt like my hand was going to go grab a Jameson shot and it would all be over. It all felt very perilous for a while. And then I think I just put all that anxiety into work. All right, enough of this cycle. It doesn't matter what the thing is that I'm abusing. It's still the same behavior around it. We interviewed each other, and I talked about having an eating disorder as well. And food, you got to eat it every day. So it's a much more complicated relationship. It is certainly no easier or harder. It is simply complicated because you don't get to go, okay, fine, I'll never eat food again. Right. So you put that in the rearview mirror in some way, shape, or form? Yes. But I think, like you're saying, it's always there. Yeah. I remember at the beginning of quarantine, I just told myself, this is unprecedented. Don't be mean to yourself. Mm. Don't every cookie you eat go, God, why do you have, you know, don't make everything knots landing. This is really hard. <laughs> just like relax for a second. It's hard enough. So it's still always there. And they used to say in the program that I was in, there would be people who would come in from AA who would be like, this is my last addiction and I'm now trying to deal with my food issue, but this is the final thing for that exact reason. Right. That you can completely give up drinking or completely give up Coke or whatever your thing is and figure out a way to avoid it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, eating disorder people have to engage with food every day in a way that doesn't hurt them. Right. And that's strangely hard and weird. So the thing that you've been trying to quit the whole time feels like a shape-shifting worm. You have to be like, I do this, I do that. And then where does the ultimate surrender or where you lay down your arms and you're like, I'm done with this, come in? 
You know, it's funny. I had that realization somewhere in the pre-still drinking on Fenven area. (laughs) Sorry. I don't mean to laugh, but every time you say Fenven, I'm like, that was a thing, man. It's a total throwback. And only a few people actually went through it. And it's really specific. And it really was crazy making. Chad, this drug gave people heart attacks. Yeah. People were Mm. dying of this, but it worked. It got you skinny. So they kept prescribing it. I lost 30 pounds in one month. Jesus. That's not good. (laughs) It's not good. It was like my heart was racing. I used to describe it. You know, sometimes in the summer, if you leave a bunch of windows open and then there's a door in some part of your house that slams just out of the blue because like a wind kicks up. That feeling (laughs) right after the door slams is how I felt all day long. Constantly like... (gasps) (gasps) Like a lunatic reactive in that thing. But there was a day I remember... Because I would take these pills and just not think about food. It was not an issue, not this struggle and this don't do it, do it, you know, devil, angel on my shoulder. But what I started doing was going to the Beverly Center every day and buying the same like baby T-shirt in a different color. So it literally was just the next addiction down. I just moved from food to shopping. And then, of course, the drinking was still going on. I could see it as I was doing it. And then I just didn't know what to do about it. But that idea that at the end of the day, it's not the things you're abusing, it's the fact that you have this compulsion to abuse yourself or to hurt yourself or to avoid things and make the wrong call, whatever it is. It was kind of an eye-opening experience to just see how addiction plays out. The methodologies or whatever it is that you learned to be able to quit drinking, to quit fen-fen, to quit quit stuff that actually goes in your body, like things you can actually buy somewhere, things that are tangible. How much can you apply those same methodologies to quitting a friendship that is not good for you? Even when you said, I had to tell myself at the beginning of COVID, enough about don't eat that cookie or don't eat that thing or whatever— In my head, the first thing I thought was, yeah, that sounds good. But can you actually stop feeling that? Can you actually stop thinking that? The thing I have personally learned, and I've also had this same therapist that I got in like 2003. She's still my therapist today. Wow. She truly is really an incredibly helpful individual. And this is the kind of stuff that when I say it, I need to give her credit because I wouldn't be able to say any of this stuff without her very masterful assistance for all these years. But at the end of the day, what I had to learn and what I resisted for so long is that how I feel matters. And that quality of my life experience, it's not an afterthought. It matters today, right now, the kind of experience that I'm having. So if my urge is, I'm going to win Julian Chadover right now by making the perfect joke, and then I have to do that no matter what, even mm. if both of your faces are like bummed out and your <laughs> eyes have gone flat and you're like, please stop talking. I'm answering to a compulsion and ignoring reality. So actually, even if I got you, you know, if that was such a bad scenario or whatever, <laughs> let's hope it's not. <laughs> if that were the problem, I would be feeding myself a thing that wasn't actually nourishing me because my idea idea is that laughing is the goal. But what I've learned is, no, no, trying to connect with people, trying to have a shared experience, listening back and forth, not controlling things, not having a plan and a weird agenda going into Mm -hmm. stuff, like all that actually is what calms me down and makes me feel better. The other shit actually creates more problems. And so it's taken me a really long time because I'm also the kind of person that will just move to LA and go, I'm going to go do this thing, you know, because I have a plan and I believe in myself, quote unquote, in certain ways, really bullheaded and kind of strong minded in some ways. 
that work great. Yeah. Super. But then in the ways it doesn't work, I have had to learn to go, it doesn't mean the whole thing's trashed, but there's some areas where you really fall down. You really have to prioritize things better and take care better, which is just a learning experience. I feel like I often have a docket of, I got to quit that thing. I got to give that shit up. I know this friendship is bad for me, but maybe six more months. Is that somewhere in your brain, that list of shit you need to leave behind? Yes, truly. Like the thing I love about podcasting is it's not on camera. Like I am now middle-aged woman and we got really popular. I was like, this is what I was trying to avoid. Georgia is always like, can we get new headshots? And I'm like, can we please just not just do it? Just never like, do that. Can we just not? <laughs> can this be an audio experience only? Because that pressure brings up so much PTSD from the past and from that what is good, what is attractive. Those issues for me kind of can't go away at this point. So it's how I interact with them, how I treat the docket, where it's like, you should this. And it's like, Right. But actually what I should do is try to be mentally healthy and calm, truly happy. Because I was positive that I was going to be so happy when I took that fen-fen and dropped that weight. And it happened and I was wearing tiny clothes and it was all the things that I told myself all my life was the key. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. there was no difference. It didn't do the thing I thought it was going to do. I don't know what your position was before. It, It sounds like you worked a lot had a lot of responsibility, but I know with 34 million downloads a month, you probably have money. And I don't know what kind of money, but I know that for me, I always thought, if I've got my own money, no one can tell me what the fuck to do. (laughs) And I actually have found it has created the exact opposite pressure is I feel I need to prove to everybody that me making my own money has not changed me at all. And I'm still incredibly generous. And I probably take on more of those not healthy relationships or encourage older relationships that are not healthy that Chad is talking about. I'm lucky to have a lot of friends that I've had for a long time. Friends from home that I've known for 40 years. I have friends in LA who we went through these crazy times together Mm -hmm. and we still love each other and talk to each other. I've definitely lost batches of friends that have come and gone because also when, I don't know if this is true for you guys, but in my 20s, I had 35 best friends. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the smartest things my therapist ever told me. She goes, no, 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 the inner circle's like three people. What are you talking (laughs) about? And I'm like, what? (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) Because that's LA, right? You got to network and you got to know people and you got to be everybody's favorite. So kind of moving into that phase of that ain't it and it doesn't work for me, it makes that part easier. I just know that I have a real love of the entertainment business and of being involved in it and the work that I've done enlivened me in ways that I thought, oh, my only chance to have this feeling would be to have my own sitcom. Suddenly when I was doing other things and stuff behind the camera and writing and all this creative stuff, I went, ooh, that's a brand new feeling that I never even knew was possible. That feeling of I've made this decision to kind of dedicate what I'm doing to this career. I really like that I have a career. I think it's cool. I think I've done cool stuff. But if I had to pick the quitting that I was going to talk about, there was a phase after I'd had a bunch of writing jobs. And it was right before our podcast, we started doing it and it took off because that happened pretty quickly. Mm. But right before I had a series of 
writing jobs that were like mid-management. It's like head writing jobs. Mm -hmm. And each one was less satisfying artistically than the last. Mm. And a lot of them were very negatively impactful in terms of the experience that I had in the people that I had to work with and picking these jobs where I felt very undervalued and disrespected kind of and thinking, well, this is just the path I'm on. So I just have to keep doing this. After one that was particularly bad, I remember that show ended and my agent called and was like, they're looking for a head writer for this blank show. And I said, oh, sounds good. And then the person I was supposed to interview with called me and I just didn't call them back. That's awesome. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Because in my mind, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Whatever this is. And I was in a terrible place financially at that time. I was really very underwater. And I still went, nothing's going to change if I keep doing the same thing over and over. I basically didn't take that job, was even in more financial shit, and then met Georgia. And she was like, don't you think we should start a podcast? I was like, I really do. And it was that thing of going by, talking to her feels great. Right. You're right. We should record this. This is good. To me, I wouldn't have done that if I had just taken another job and basically re-given myself over to like helping people that didn't appreciate it or didn't like it. I think I needed to cut off doing work like that and just kind of giving away creativity and support and understanding to whoever. And then if they didn't like it, oh, well, I guess I'm not that good at this. That's bullshit. Stop doing that. Get a hold of yourself and figure out what you are actually doing. And the podcast and the success of the podcast came almost immediately after that. You might be sort of too high up on the podcasting industry mountain to hear this noise, but it feels to me that when I share with people, for instance, what we're working on here, sometimes they respond as if I'm starting a band sort of yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, totally. oh, I'm recording oh. an R&B record with Julie, which I would love to do, which oh would be God, fantastic. Oh my Chad, when are we doing that? I know. Yes. Actually, let's end this call yes. and get on working on that. <laughs> Go to the Jazz Bakery and have some shows, just the two of you. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, acoustic. <laughs> yeah, look at how much I know about music. Well, yeah, yeah like yeah. this industry, podcasting, I'm having a hard time articulating it, but people are kind of mean about it. Yeah, sure. They want to be like, oh, that was so X amount of years ago, unless you're you or, you know, someone <laughs> else kind of at your echelon of this thing. What was it like for you to achieve such humongous success in something that couldn't have been your childhood dream because it didn't exist? Couldn't have been something where you ever had a vision that you were going to do this thing even 10 years ago. How has that changed the way you think about the future at all? For sure. Because it did seem so late in my career that anything new would happen or any kind of other venue or platform would exist. Although I have to say, my friend Chris and I started, I have another podcast called Do You Need a Ride, where we used to pick up comics and drop them off at the airport when they were going to do weeks out of town. Oh my God, that's brilliant. I love it. So smart. (laughs) It was very fun. We still do it. We have a great time. And that's more like a stand-up comedy specific podcast. But no one gave a shit. I think we had like 400 listeners for about five years. Stand-up comics do stuff like that a lot, where here's just one more way I can work through my narcissism and these people are going to join me and let's see what happens. And they kind of don't expect anything to happen. So I was a little bit used to that. And also podcasting started, like I knew guys that were in it 
It was almost like along with satellite radio. There were lots of fits and starts in the beginning of podcasting. Mark Marin from the very mm. beginning, I remember it was out in Santa Monica. It was like a big airplane hangar with individual trailers inside of it. And all these people recording podcasts at the same time. I was like, this is sad. I've been there. I went there once. I just had this weird flash <laughs> of going to some comedian's trailer near the Barker hangar area. Yes. But yet I feel like I'm blacked out now. I've completely forgotten it. And I don't know. Yes, I do. He's a comedian named Sarge. And he had a podcast. Sarge? Yes. Sorry, Karen. You just gave me a crazy <laughs> flashback. That's the earliest of date. You've been doing it for a long time. It's early days. But it kind of started and stopped. Remember when they tried to do Air America? That kind of thing where you think something's going to go and then it goes away. Mm. And here's what I did know when I was back, like, still auditioning that everyone talked about the great jobs were voiceover jobs. Like, if you could get mm -hmm. any kind of voiceover job, that was the dream. Mm -hmm. And no one I knew was on that level, because back then you had to be a really successful actual screen actor, and then you would get the voiceover for the Ford or whatever. So I always had that as, oh, maybe that's a thing I could do. But yeah, for the most part, it was just to do it, to be able to continue performing. So when this one took off, I would tell Georgia, because she go, look, we're number one on the thing again. And I go, stop looking at that. It's going to go away. You have to prepare for when this stops. I saw plenty of people have skyrocketing success. And then in month 11, it dips and everyone has a nervous breakdown, right? So I'd be like, get ready. We're popular now, but these things are cyclical. It's going to go down and you have to be prepared. She'd be like, okay. And then like, and then it just never went down. And that's when I had to go, okay, all my experience and the shit that I thought I knew does not apply. This is a whole new arena. That's really, really interesting. And I just keep going back to my original question because when you said, don't look at that, don't look at the numbers because it's going to go away. That's always me with the comment section. That's me with thinking about 100 million people watching. I'm just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> if I just keep my head down and do my tiny job and act like it's a tiny job for as long as I can, maybe I won't get canceled and put away. Yeah. That just brings me back to, so do you quit while you're ahead? <laughs> I mean, do you start thinking, okay, I'm going to do this until we get 50 million listeners and then I'm out. I got to get out. Here's my thing. In the trajectory of my career, I've started and stopped or tried to do things and essentially failed and then restarted and did something else. I've followed this very strange path this whole time. So I know at this point, because this is literally like the fourth career that I've had. Oh, it'll just tell me. I just know that I've stuff socked away. I've things prepared so that never again does the position I was in six years ago where I truly was just like, I have to take whatever writing job comes and it's not about my taste or my standards. It's literally writing on clip shows on E! and just trying to write 20 jokes mm. so that I can leave for the day. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to make it so I never have to go back to that. But that also we know entertainment is a very cyclical thing. And it's a very moody, temperamental thing that people like what they like until they stop liking it. And then oftentimes they start hating it. And none of it is to be relied upon or trusted, really. There was a moment in your Detroit live show where you mentioned that it was very clever how you put it, but you were basically like, there are some others here, which was to say somebody brought their husband or yeah. boyfriend or whatever. <laughs> the drag-alongs. We call them drag-alongs. Yeah, some drag-alongs. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought you were partially making a joke about like 
fact, guys. <laughs> so I guess just to put a punctuation on it, I heard a lot of ladies screaming at your show. <laughs> <laughs> do men like your show? Some do. Mm. True crime is a predominantly female media. Almost, I think, 80% mm. are some of the numbers we've gotten. Wow. So I feel like George and I just kind of talk about ourselves and our own interests. We're just talking to each other. And we're not hostessing at all, which I think sometimes people don't like or people aren't used to of like, well, what about my interests? We're like, we don't care. <laughs> we're, just, <laughs> we're just bullshitting with each other and talking about dumb stuff. And then true crime. And then some murder. And then some murder <laughs> to kind of... Cleanse the palate. To kind of really set our... To lighten minds. the tone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But what we have a lot of is guys who have girlfriends who listen and they're forced to listen because mm. they're in the car together or the girlfriend feels the need to constantly go, just please listen to this one part. And so we often meet men because we do a meet and greet after live shows where like 100 people, we say hi and take pictures and stuff. And very often the boyfriend will be like, no, I like you now. Now. But, <laughs> but it is absolutely the girlfriend's forcing them into interacting with our show. It's the same thing as like a book club where all the ladies got together and drank wine every Thursday. You wouldn't be like, I have to be there. This is my jam. Because it is a very kind of female-centric trend. But it feels like more than a trend to me. That feels very deep divey. There's something that women really connect to in true crime. I mean, Patton Oswalt's wife, Michelle McNamara. That documentary blew my mind. And I realized the depth of the work she was doing in that space, like actually crime solving, but also the thick skin. You have to be empathetic and incredibly thick skin to be looking at and thinking about murder. I think it's fascinating that this resonates so much with women. Yeah. I know why your podcast, because you two are such bright, funny women, and that first 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes of you talking, is so inviting. It's like the women I want to talk to at the bar, the women who stayed <laughs> at the Starbucks for an hour too long. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to pretend you're my friend and sidle on over. <laughs> but the idea that somehow women have a fascination with murder, it blows my mind. I'm not sure I get it. Do you have an insight? I mean, we get asked this question all the time, but it is hard. Oh, no, I asked the worst question. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I did it. No. Uh, no. Do you want me to ring the bell? I'll ring the fucking bell. <laughs> no. God, you're a snooze, Julie. But it is, <laughs> it is truly. Here's the thing. I think our show got popular because we almost like put our finger on that trend when no one had really acknowledged it. And we didn't know we were acknowledging it. We didn't know what we were doing. But all this stuff kind of came out of it. So we're asked to theorize on a thing that we kind of don't even have a good sense of anyway. But from what other people tell us, it is some people, it's an anxiety issue. For me, both of my parents were first responders. So big, heavy shit got discussed a lot in front of me as a child. My mother was the person, if there was a mentally ill person in a grocery store creating an issue, she'd be like, hold on one second, and she would go deal with it. There's a little bit of that, who's going to take care of this? And mm. I realize that reading articles or books isn't taking care of anything, but it's almost like attending to of what happens to people. How do you get to the point where you are, the big example is John Wayne Gacy, because there's a famous saying on our podcast where I said toxic masculinity ruins the party again. That I was <laughs> talking really about <laughs> I I was talking about John Wayne Gacy's father mm. who hated him because he liked to garden 
and the father was a horrible alcoholic. And so he beat his son senseless because his son was slightly out of the norm of what he was supposed to be as like a 50s boy. Mm -hmm. That's how we get to a John Wayne Gacy. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is an interesting approach as a complete person who doesn't know, but is interested. Is there a way where we can stop treating each other and children this way so that less of this goes on? That's an interesting analysis. Or is there a repeating pattern where there's nothing we can do because if you're born with a certain chemistry, it's going to happen no matter what? Because the anomaly, the human anomaly of a serial killer, it's like talking about Dracula. When you and Georgia met at that party, there weren't a lot of murder podcasts. Were you like... So who do you like? Dahmer? You mean into Dahmer? What's your jam? <laughs> it was right when there was a series of true crime documentaries on HBO. So there was The Staircase, which was that French... I completely saw every second of it. Right? So that's <laughs> what we started talking about because we were just like, I've heard of this and I didn't know any of this stuff. And we were freaked out. Wasn't that around the time of Durst? Was that the Durst one too? Yes. was around the same time. Uh-huh. The You're jinx. Right. It all kind of went mm -hmm. in a row where suddenly really talented documentarians were making documentaries about cases that had been like a forensic files that mm -hmm. you saw in 1998 that then was suddenly being analyzed. You don't actually know this case or you don't know the story or... Any of those, the Central Park Five, mm. and the way that you were there in the 80s, I was like 10 years old when that story went out. It was this incredibly racist white lens that that story was presented. And then the reanalyzing and basically the retrying of look what actually happened here yeah. and look what the truth is behind as opposed to what we were presented it's that kind of looking at things and like learning the truth or learning the reality behind something. Also making a murderer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The car lot where you're like, oh, this yeah. can't be happening. And you're like, it's been fucking happening for years because someone went and took the time to make a documentary where you see it play out in front of you. So I wrote about race one time. <laughs> 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 and then some other times. And some other times. And you talk about murder all the time. So I imagine people want to engage you in conversation about murder all the time. Mm. Do you ever have to like stop that shit? Do you ever have <laughs> to just be like, enough, this is dark. I need a break from this. I would say normally no, because I like talking about heavy shit and real shit. I don't know why. I think it's the thing I said before of like, parents and what I was used to. My mom was a big process your feelings at the dinner table type of mom. Mm -hmm. So it makes me feel kind of comforted when we get together and go, did you fucking hear about that thing? And it makes me feel better. But I never felt that way until quarantine because uh. we just kept podcasting through it. We just kept going. And mm -hmm. there were times where I was literally like, I can't, I can't, I can't have this conversation. And we started doing more survival stories mm. and just kind of extreme stories. Or did you ever hear this? Almost was like, can you believe this is a true story? But it didn't have to be the story that we, a man who killed this many women in a row or a person that didn't get caught because he looked so fucking great to the cops. Right. Or these stories that really start to, on top of basically the decline of democracy in this country, <laughs> it was just a bit much. So yeah. we did kind of change our approach a little bit because we felt ourselves burning out. Yeah. It has been dark. Murder was, because like you said, it gives you that feeling of, I'm so grateful 
and that's so far from my life. And it's close in a little bit of a titillating sort of scary way, but really, I know that I'm safe. And then you're locked in your house for a year and a half, and you go, oh my God, anything's possible. Just get me the fuck out. Or just like, because I did stand up for so long, I never wanted to watch comedy because it would just make me feel like Mm. I'm bad or I wish I could be this or it would bring up all my fucked up ego shit. Yeah. But immediately in quarantine, I've rewatched Arrested Development, I think five full times. Mm -hmm. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to get joke, joke, joke. And same, sorry to be this way, but same with Modern Family. That show is so solid gold with those jokes. My niece and I have a complete ritual where eight o'clock at night, no matter, she's TikToking and FaceTiming in her room, but she comes out and she has all of the Modern Families recorded and we've watched all of them five times. I mean, that was quarantine. That was... It was. Nothing heavy. Nothing heavy. Please just give me The Office over and over again. I was actually going to ask you because you, <laughs> except for the question Julie asked you, which you get asked all the time. I was going to ask. You want me to bring like, it out? I got it. I got it just in case you need it. I'm right here. I'm riding the bell. <laughs> just in case I bully I you. I'm not going to bully the bell. you, Julie. Okay. No, no. In case you um, ask a bad question. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Anything's possible. Well, I'm nervous about this question because I'm least confident about this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Is this fun for you to have this conversation? You probably do a lot of these. Is this fun? Entirely. It's an absolute joy. The idea that I got to go back to performing after so long of not doing it and telling myself, just don't worry about that, or you tried and now you get to do other stuff. The idea that I got to basically jump directly back into performing and then do it in this way that is so catered to my comforts and my, I think, strengths in a way. Also in stand-up, it's really hard to write hard jokes and be concise. And that was a thing I kind of didn't do very well a lot of the time. My jokes went on and on. That's what podcasting is. It's just like, oh, hey, I thought something else. Oh, that reminds me of third grade. It's just bullshitting. And that's the thing I love the most in the world. So it actually is very full circle, very fun thing for me. When we found out that you were actually going to come on this podcast, I freaked out. I was like, this is royalty. You are podcast royalty. You're Michael Jordan of podcasts. Yeah, the Michael Jordan of podcasts. That's right. And we are so very, very grateful. And in the spirit of honoring quitting. I honor your quits. I hope you keep quitting the things that bug you and embracing the stuff that makes you feel better and more whole. Thank you. Me too. But thank you. We really, really just can't thank you enough. Absolutely. It's my joy. This is a great conversation. I'm so blushing. Thank you. Thank you.